Well, good morning to you all. Uh, we'll be in 2 Kings uh, chapter 15. 2 Kings chapter 15 this morning. Continuing our series, but with three kings to cover today, Menahem, Pekahiah, and Pekah. So let's pray and commit our way to the Lord this morning. Father, grateful for what your word tells us about the human condition that reminds us every single day of our need of you, that um, there is no solution outside of your own person. And we can't do enough good to save ourselves. We can't do enough good in society to make society good and make it a reflection of your own character and glory. Um, And so we do pray again for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth to the same extent, the same way that it is done in heaven already. And in praying so, we are praying for the return of our Savior and the establishment of his kingdom so that everlasting righteousness will surround your people and your presence will be with us forever. So bless us until Jesus comes, however, that we may continue to be faithful to you as this series is emphasizing for us to walk with you in courage and conviction of heart, um, not to earn your favor, but because we already delight in that favor. We possess it through our Savior. So direct our attention today to your word and what you would have to tell us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Most of us don't like decay. You think about your compost pile, if you have such a thing. We we have a little compost bucket, so you put whatever is kitchen waste that's in in that, and then you're going to take it out to the compost piles, hopefully several times a week. But it doesn't take very long for, uh, you're like, it's just a banana peel. It's just coffee grounds. But somehow you stick them in that compost bucket and leave them there for two days. And then you, you open it to, to throw, you know, an apple core in. And you're like, oh, this is horrible. It's like, how does it do that? It, it's, it's disgusting. Nobody wants to be anywhere near it. And the reality is society wears down to the same way and the same extent that physical things deteriorate around us because society is just an aggregation, just kind of a stacking together of the wickedness of a whole bunch of people. And when we have that, we get decay and corruption, and decay and corruption leads to chaos and more ruin, and ruin accelerates ruin. You know the difference. What if you have a brand new bucket of compost? You know, nothing in it yet. You put something inside it. Well, it may take four, five, six, seven days to deteriorate. But oh, if there are already mold spores in that bucket, it goes fast. And so it seems like the decay around us accelerates as time goes on. Now, whether that's just provincialism and perception regarding today because we remember the good old days when we were children and that kind of thing. We don't know, but it does at least seem that way. In the testimony of the scripture for us today, we recognize in such times of decay, it becomes very difficult for the people of God to know what to do. And we do have some encouraging words near the end, so hang on, but it's going to be real discouraging until we get there, okay? So let's look at the word of the Lord and see what God has to say to us. Second Kings chapter 15, kind of in the middle of the chapter, verses 14 and following. Then Menahem, the son of Gadi, came up from Tirzah and came to Samaria 
and struck down Shalom the son of Jabesh in Samaria and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Shalom and the conspiracy that he made, remember that Shalom himself had killed the previous king, right? Um, One of the sons of Jeroboam. Behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. At that time, Menahem sacked Tifsa and all who were in it and its territory from Tirzah on because they did not open it to him. Therefore, he sacked it and he ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. In the 39th year of Azariah, the king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, began to reign over Israel and he reigned 10 years in Samaria. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Pol, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pol a thousand talents of silver, that he might help him to confirm his hold on the royal power. Menahem exacted the money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now the rest of the deeds of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Menahem slept with his fathers and Pekah, Hiah, his son, reigned in his place. A lot of injuries require rehabilitation to heal properly. And so we can return the sufferer to some state of usefulness and hopefully uh, a state of less pain. But there's a major problem with injuries. They, They hurt significantly in the meantime. They degrade our bones, muscles, ligaments, tendons. They can damage nerves as well in the process that It feels better sometimes just to leave the injury alone rather than engage in the additionally painful exercise of rehabilitation. Had any surgeries? Did you get anything? Soldier, soldier, shoulder surgery, knee surgery, ankle surgery, foot surgery, whatever it is, and then they send you right away to to some rehab specialist. And like, now here, we're just going to do this. Now tell me when it hurts. You know, and you're like, um way back then. <laughs> you know. and, and the ultimate objective, again, of course, is restoration, but horrible things happen in the meantime. A few years ago, I was playing basketball with a group of men from the uh, Bob Jones Seminary when my knee suddenly and rather unexpectedly popped. I didn't step on anybody's foot. I didn't make any weird moves, but my knee, did, and several people actually heard it when it popped. Well, I tore the ACL, MCL, and meniscus in the knee, had to have it reconstructed. It was all, and just like, it's just basketball. I played basketball all the time. Didn't matter. Well, after surgery to repair uh, most of the damage, you can't completely fix things like that, but um, the, the doctor was talking with me several weeks afterward, and he's like, well, yeah, you know, we've been watching your progress, and you're one in a thousand. I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> no, no, one in a thousand the negative way. He says, you form scar tissue so fast that your knee is locking up, and if we don't tear that scar tissue, that doesn't that sound fun? If we don't tear that scar tissue, literally your, mo- your knee will become immobile. You'll, you'll we'll walk with it in a locked position all the rest of your life and not be able to bend it. I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's wonderful. What do we do with, about that? Well, they tried it physical therapy. They did their best, and, and you know, they say, you know, tap out when it gets too painful. I, I wouldn't. And finally, she's like, you know, this, this, should, be, this should be pretty high. Let's, let me take your blood pressure. It's like 170. 
over something. She's like, no, you're supposed to tap out before you're about to have a stroke from the pain, okay? So it's like, how do we gauge it? They tried the best they could. Finally, the um, medical community recommended something called a flexionator. Flexionator is simple enough. They bring in a folding chair. A folding chair with just a, a, a little piece of metal that sticks out the front and kind of a handle that's up in front of you, that's innocuous enough. No, see, the, the great-great-grandfather of the flexionator is the middle-aged rack. <laughs> because you put your foot at, at an angle on that little inclined plane that's in front of you, and that handle that you just, you go, you go like this, back and forth, and as you do, it moves it steadily, inexorably, hydraulically, crushes your foot back towards you. And so it's bending your knee and forcing it to break. So you had to do this for half an hour at a time, four times a day, and you're just, you know, practically you're just weeping in, in pain as this is going on. It's a horrible process. But a process that was actually necessary in order to achieve any kind of gain. Why would a person put himself through all of that? Because the range of motion gained at the end of the process is worth the intermediate suffering caused by the wreck and ruin of the fallen world. So in the world of medicine, we have enough sense to realize that restoration only comes through risk and faithfulness and doing a hard thing. And in the midst of a hard thing, I did not cause the damage. The damage was caused... But unless you're faithful in the midst of the, the repair process, the restoration process, then the damage remains permanent. And really, that is part of a huge lesson then for the people of God because the ruin around us in the world will be permanent in, in some sense. Jesus is coming again. He'll make all things right. But in the sense of the level of decay that a society has sunk to will be entrenched and irreversible if the people of God don't act faithfully on a daily basis to, as it were, tear the scar tissue of sin that's around us, some of which is going on in our own hearts, and we tear that by repentance. But repentance is based on faith, and that's why we say again, all of life is a life of faith. If we don't believe God that repentance is a process of restoration, we don't go through it. And it hurts to repent because we have to admit admit we're wrong. And if we don't believe God that we are salt and light in this world, then we're like, I don't do anything. I'm not really that significant. Nobody knows about me. I can't be really salt and light when I'm laid up, my career is over, I'm retired, I have few intersections with society around me. I'm not really salt and light. Why don't we trust God on that matter when he says, yes, you are? And continue to be faithful, doing the hard breaking of scar tissue day in and day out so that, yeah, the world remains damaged. And no, we're not going to change everybody around us in society again. It takes Jesus' return to do what we long to have done ultimately. But until then, our faithfulness is part of God's plan in achieving his good purposes. So the lesson of the day teaches us this very important truth because evil hastens a nation's decline. You and I have to look for opportunities to be faithful in a dark age. 
Because the inertia of evil is, is, as it were, locking and entrenching all of society in darkness and in its sin. If we don't take those opportunities to, to tear the scar tissue of that sin through the work of the Spirit and the Scriptures, um, then we're not retarding the wickedness around us that God expects us to. So the passage first teaches us that the selfishness of the wicked hastens a nation's decline through violence. The wicked fight for power. Uh, The first couple of verses in our passage tell us that. They remind us that, again, Shalom had already assassinated the previous king, and now Menahem comes along and assassinates Shalom. Now, is that going to tend towards growth and health and peace in society? When political rulers are looking to, to backstab figuratively or literally and destroy each other with violent overthrows. Violent overthrows could involve um, the abuse of the Justice Department. It could involve actual violence. It could involve lots of different things, but still, the wicked are fighting for power, and that obviously is going to lead to chaos and ruin in society, just as it did in Israel. It will do with us today. So this is not the only verse where we could make this point, But I will remind you that the wicked claw for power at any cost. It's really clear, if if you open any of our news media, that the only actual ethical standard that most politicians hold to, the only thing that determines right versus wrong in all of their public pronouncements is, what is it? Whatever gets me power and money. They literally would be happy to stand up today and say, X is right, Y is evil, we have to resist Y. But if tomorrow, tomorrow, the exact opposite will give them more power, they will be happy to say it. And they have done so just within the last 10 years in our country. So there is no standard of righteousness outside their own imaginations of what will gain themselves strength. Morality to the wicked quite literally equals my power. And the governor of New Mexico said exactly that just a little over a week ago when she literally, literally declared the United States Constitution invalid and her own oath of office invalid whenever she feels like violating either one. Says the Constitution doesn't have any authority in New Mexico if I dream up any alternative. And you go, well, that that can't go well for society because then somebody else is going to come along and resist your tyranny with other... And it it leads to chaos and combat within your own party, combat between parties, combat between the government and the people who say, well, wait, wait, if you don't have to obey the laws of the land, why should I obey you? And, of course, that leads to ruin and chaos. But that's just the selfishness of the wicked that is hastening a nation's decline through violence. We haven't gotten yet to what we ought to do with that. That's near the end. The wicked despise freedom. How do we know that? Look at the passage again. In verse 16, we have um, uh, Menahem goes up to Samaria. He returns to Tirzah. By the way, he'd come from Tirzah. So he, he goes from the city Tirzah up towards Samaria to to assassinate the existing, the sitting king. 
Then he returns to the territory around Tirzah. Actually, Tifzah is a little bit further south and west from Tirzah, but he returns to that region. And the passage tells us he goes on a, a war of barbarity when he doesn't get his own way. Why? They hate freedom. You think about it. The people in Tirzah and Tifzah know Menahem. So Menahem goes up and kills the king. Then Menahem comes back and is like, uh, yeah, by the way, I killed the king, so I'm now king. And don't you guys want to make me king? And the people that essentially know him go, mm, no, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. We already know you. So it says they, re- they refuse to open up to him. That is, they refuse to open the city gates and welcome him as the king. Instead, they're like, no, you're an upstart assassin. That's all you are. So, of course, we're not going to open our gates to you and make you king. And his response to that is, oh, well, you know, I'm a tolerant person, and I believe in living and letting live. So, you know, if you don't feel like I would make a good king, then, then hopefully I will persuade you by the, the wise decisions that I make over the next several years that really you should accept me as king, right? Is that what you read? He attacked the city, destroys the cities, whole surrounding region, and this whole uh, rip open women with children thing. Kind of barbarity. So essentially, in our map of Israel, what we have had here is Menahem going north to commit an assassination and seize power tyrannically. And he comes back down south to a region just south of where he came from, and then he exterminates unborn children in that entire region. The wicked destroy mercilessly. Same verse right at the end. What does that sound a lot alike? A lot like. His conduct, if you were to say there's a, the roughest analogy in the modern era to what Menahem did is what? It's abortion. Because the infant, the unborn infant, is not going to survive the experience. So the woman might, depending on how they did it, because you can have a cesarean section, you can actually be cut open and then still survive that. But the child's not when the child can't live and there's no neonatal in, in, intensive care unit in ancient Israel. So the wicked destroy mercilessly. They don't care about anybody who stands in their way. And they're hastening the decline of a country to the point that God will no longer relent, but will judge. We are rapidly approaching 57 million babies slaughtered in America since 1973. Um, one site that I read, which I thought was really effective way to, to demonstrate just how significant this is. Let's do it by states. To add up the number of children that Americans have slaughtered since 1973, that would involve the entire state population of the following... Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Louisiana, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Idaho, and Arkansas combined. We get grossed out sometimes when we read the Old Testament. And how could a king do that? I mean, attacking pregnant women and, and killing unborn children... Menahem had nothing on America. 
And it is merciless. And by the way, it was done for the same reason. Why did Menahem, why would Menahem commit an, an atrocity like this, an act of barbarity like this, so that he could have power and freedom to do whatever he want and no one was going to challenge him? And almost all the abortions carried out in a society like ours are done because a woman wants control of her own career, control of her own situation, and doesn't want anyone getting in the way of encumbering her. That, in some sense, almost makes it worse because it would be the equivalent of somehow a demonic spirit entering into all the women of Tifsa in the surrounding regions, and they all together killed their unborn children simultaneously. That's how bad our country is. The wicked extract wealth for their own power. Verses 18 to 20, Paul comes up against the land, and Menahem bribes off the Assyrian ruler, bribes him, so he goes, I'll give you a thousand talents of silver, probably close to 75,000 pounds of silver. That's a lot of money. Where am I going to get such money? I know, I'll tax the people. Because for me to have power... Somebody's got to give, and it's not going to be me. So it's got to be you. And he goes out and um, devastates there, and it's, it's the rich, which I find ironic because it's the rich that often lead the charge towards certain types of wickedness, and yet ultimately God says you reach a certain point in a nation's decline where the poor don't have enough money left for the power brokers who remain, so then they will start attacking the rich as well. One of the classic consequences of the wicked's taking power is the rise in forcible taxation. It takes a lot of money to engage in bribery, corruption, and the sponsorship of destructive evil causes, and the wicked will get that money from somewhere. Have you ever noticed that criminals do not care much about the harm that's caused by their crimes? We have a society again today that acts as if we could sit down with a criminal and be like, no, no, you will hurt somebody with doing that. If, if you go in with a flash mob and you, you, break through, you smash all the cases in a store and you steal things, that hurts the store owner. And the criminal will go, I never knew. How was I supposed to have known that? And like criminals know that. Of course they do. The problem is that they don't care about the harm caused to others. Drug dealers don't care about the millions of people enslaved to drugs. As long as there is an available group of people willing to buy their product, they don't care if methamphetamines destroy your mind the first time you take it. They don't care if you live in a gutter and your family is destroyed and your job is destroyed and your children are destroyed. Ruined souls are left in their wake. But even our smaller sins show a cavalier attitude towards others and towards God that amounts to disturbing selfishness. And selfishness hastens the decline of a nation. And the alternative is not just that we try harder to be charitable. It's that we walk by faith in such a way that God is transforming our inner person so that we delight to help others instead of have the same attitudes that the wicked have. 
So let's not find ourselves allies to the wicked, but an adversary of the degradation that we find around us in the world. Because people of faith, inherently, in the process of living lives of faith, oppose selfishness. The next few verses in this chapter. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, so we already dealt with Uzziah. Another name for him is Azariah. That was last week. He reigned 52 years. So this is almost at the end of his reign. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned two years. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to send. And look at this. And Pekah, sorry, need to go back here. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, his captain, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead and struck him down in Samaria. In the citadel of the king's house with Argob and Aria, he put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Pekahiah and all that he did, uh, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel. One after another after another. Crime upon crime. Disaster upon disaster. So this is really covering two different kings. Because we addressed Menahem. After Menahem, Pekah, comes to uh, power, and Pekah is going to strike, uh, sorry, Pekahiah comes to power, and then Pekah comes to power after him. And the point here is that there is a persistence of evil in the wicked, so that wickedness tends to succeed wickedness, and that hastens a nation's decline through instability. Notice here that the wicked don't tend to repent and restore things. Wickedness tends to double down in doing evil when given the opportunity to do so. With a transition of the kingdom to Pekahiah, who did not obtain the throne by murder like his dad did. Okay, again, order, Menahem, Pekahiah, Pekah. So we're talking right now briefly about Pekahiah, but almost nothing in Scripture is said about him. At very least, he succeeded to the throne. Honestly? Now, I don't know if you can even say that, but at least he didn't assassinate anybody to get there. He inherited it from his father, Menahem. There was an opportunity for a king to choose a righteous path here. He wasn't barbarous and murderous yet. He hadn't done a a long list of crimes yet. He accedes to the throne legitimately, and the people can almost go, so now what's going to happen? I mean, something good is coming. And instead, what does the passage say? He did what was evil, just like his father had done, just like Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had done all the way back. He chose to do more evil. And the wicked then will compete with the wicked. 25 and 26, in a very real sense, one of the best things for the righteous to do. Here's another action item for you. Stay out of the way. One of the best things for the righteous to do when the wicked reign is stay out of the way. Because you cannot fight through any illegitimate means. That would involve yourself with wickedness. But in a case like this, God raises up the wicked against the wicked and causes them to go to war with each other. Stay out of the way. Let the Lord deal with a situation. There are other action things that we can do that we will get to, but for, for the point here, 
Stay out of the way. Shalom kills Zechariah. Menahem kills Shalom. Pekah kills Pekahiah. It's the same old story over and over again. And that means that part of our prayer to the Lord ought to remain. And we have said this before as a point of application. Pray that God would so channel the wickedness of the wicked that they attack each other. Not that we hope that they attack anybody. But that when they are choosing to do wickedness, that in start, instead of targeting the righteous, the Lord directs them against each other. In competition, we tend to make things less stable. Right? Maybe you've played Jack Straws here. This is not Jack Straws. I know the difference. This is Jenga, right? In competition against each other, things tend to become less stable. You pull a piece out, you stack it on the top, And eventually, it all comes crashing down. Well, that is exactly what we find the Lord doing with the wickedness of the wicked. In fighting against each other and boxing against each other, ultimately they destabilize companies, societies, even whole countries, and bring them to ruin. So let's continue to follow the testimony of the Lord in in his way in life. Next few verses. 2 Kings 15, 25 to 30. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, his captain, conspired against him. I already read that with the 50 men of the people of Gilead and struck him down in Samaria. He put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Pekahiah and all that he did, behold, they're written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. So in the 52nd year of Azariah, Pekah, that's the third of the kings that we're going to talk about, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned 20 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon, Abel-Beth-Meachah, Genoa, Kadesh, Hatzor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. And he carried the people captive to Assyria. Then Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place in the 20th year of the reign of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. What does this section teach us? The, the incoherence of the wicked hastens a nation's decline through a loss of safety. Now, we're going to develop this from not only the passage that I just read, but from a parallel passage over in Chronicles, which is vital to our understanding. But first, recognize that the wicked respect no boundaries of propriety. God treats the wicked in accordance with their own wickedness. If the wicked will not respect the boundaries of property and propriety, they step over those boundaries, they attack legitimate rulers and illegitimate rulers, but they're attacking, they're fighting, they respect no property. Who comes up against them? I was like, look, if if a wicked person here will not respect my law and he keeps stepping across boundaries, I've got a good judgment for him. I'm going to get a, a rather militaristic foreign king who likewise will respect no boundaries. No boundaries of nations, no boundaries of laws, no boundaries of deities, no boundaries of ethics and morality. The Assyrians, after all, were particularly known for their cruelty. They were so cruel, they, they enjoyed their cruelty, and they posted their cruelty on the internet. I, I mean, sorry, on the walls of their city. Like, they, they would pay people to design what we call bas-reliefs. 
Okay? And, and it's, it's actually in the wall of their city, images and depictions of their cruelty. Look at us torturing these people to death. Isn't that great? We're going to brag about our torture. Those are the Assyrians. So when the wicked will not respect boundaries that God has set and boundaries that are appropriate, when the wicked go after the righteous and attack them, we have a powerful rescuer. It doesn't mean he's going to rescue every single one of us in every single situation, although ultimately we are redeemed. But eventually, the, the, the stupidity, the complete incoherence of the wicked, you're like, look, if you don't respect boundaries, do you really think that other people will? If, if you walk out and tell a society, police are bad, let's get rid of them all. And then you turn around and try to boss people around. What are they going to do with your authority? I'm like, you didn't just shoot yourself in the, the foot. You shot yourself in the head as far as your political power is concerned. Because if the police, who are merely the, what branch of government? They're the enforcers, so what branch of government is that? Executives. They don't make laws. The police like, we don't make laws. We don't, I mean, it's like, I didn't put the speed limit sign there. The politicians or county council decided what the speed limit was going to be, and all all I'm supposed to do is enforce it. And if you want to attack the enforcers of the laws, then what do you think society is eventually going to do with the legislature, legislature, the legislative branch? The laws themselves are stupid and out the window. So the wicked's respecting no boundaries of propriety is showing their incoherence, and it leads to instability rather significantly. Now, I'm going to read some verses from 2 Chronicles 28. It's not on the PowerPoint, so sorry, I skipped a passage. But listen carefully to, to what a parallel says. For Pekah, the son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 from Judah. Pekah, northern kingdom kills 120,000 soldiers from Judah in one day. All of them men of valor, because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. We almost have a Habakkuk situation here, don't we? Do you remember Habakkuk, his big issue? He's like, Lord, we're so bad. We're so wicked. What are you going to do about this? And God says, I got a plan. I'm going to send the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is kind of like, okay, uh, I didn't hear that correctly. I almost thought you said Babylonians. He's like, that's exactly what I said. He's like, you can't do that. The Babylonians are worse than we are. So the Lord actually uses a succession of the wicked to judge other wicked people. And again, I say a large part of the, of the righteous's responsibility. It's not that we stay out of society We have an active role in society, but we stay out of the way of the wicked themselves and let God do what he's doing out there. Because here we have a situation where Judah, we're not not even to that king yet, we'll talk about him in in a subsequent week here, but Judah was doing wickedness, so God judged Judah by Israel, and then God judged Israel by Assyria. But here's where we also have this element of incoherence the wicked are attending to the wrong causes. 
Okay, so what's happening up in the north right now to Israel? To Israel, northern kingdom of Israel, what's already happening to them? Assyria, I make sure I get the image, the map right for you. I have a map up here shortly. But Assyria is invading and attacking them from the north, while Israel is busy attacking Judah to the south. Brilliant. Brilliant. You're spending your energies, you're spending your soldiers, you're spending your treasury dry attacking somebody who's not even your enemy, really your enemy, while your real enemy is attacking you on the other part of your country. The wicked attend to the wrong causes. The thinking of the wicked is so badly skewed that even when the policies of the wicked are patently absurd, ineffective, and destructive, they will not relent, but will continue pursuing ineffective and destructive policies. And they'll be shipping their money to somebody else rather than taking care of their own responsibilities. He's literally saying that the adversary in the north who's pouring across our border is no threat, but kind of the people within our midst who are minding their own business are a big threat. That never happens in society, does it? The evil identify those who tear a country apart internally and externally as their allies, but they identify those who are living at peace as their adversaries. Shouldn't that be expected, though, from the righteous? Because the righteous do oppose wickedness even when we live peaceably. Wickedness is so incoherent that it always hastens the ruin of a nation. It removes safety from everyone, the wicked and the righteous, because it actively attacks those who are no threat while it ignores those who are a threat. So it will turn criminals with a 12-page felonious rap sheet free within a few hours of arrest while it will spend all of its energies looking for a new way to hunt down those who want to obey the law who want to obey the law insofar as we're able in light of God's word. So what has happened here? Assyria is attacking, and the scriptures are really clear just how much territory Assyria is winning and why the analysis that we go through comparing these passages is itself effective. Assyria didn't just make a little inroads, a slight incursion. It took Ijon, which is up near Dan, by the way, in the north, where uh, Jeroboam's first calf was, you know, his one of the two cities, Dan and Bethel. So he strikes near that, and then he steadily moves south. Then he runs across to near Tyre, and you say, why would he do that? Why would he leave the central region? Well, you need to cut the coastal road. So Hittites and other kingdoms that are up in the north and in the Anatolian plateau of Turkey can't come down and give any aid to people in the south. So he moves and he takes certain coastal cities. Then he comes right back to Galilee, and takes a bunch of cities in Galilee. Ultimately, the scriptures tell us then he conquers the entire land of Gilead, which is Transjordan, and he takes the entire land of Galilee, and then it, it tells us those two things, and then it specifically mentions Naphtali is gone. 
So we, we think in terms of, yeah, uh, Babylonian captivity is later on down the road. The Assyrian captivity happens first. But the, even the Assyrian captivity happens in stages. And the first stage was the complete conquest of one of the ten tribes in the north. Naphtali is no more. Its whole territory is conquered. Its people are deported. Okay, guys, you're down nine. What are you going to do with it? And we find they don't do well when the Lord judges. I know I'm not alone in telling my children, no, you can't do that. It's not safe. No, you can't ride your bike down the middle of the road. No, you can't run stop signs. And don't nuzzle wild animals. All right, I've never had to say that last one, but it still applies. We did find a baby squirrel a few years back, and um, one of my children was getting a little too cavalier and said, no, you have to wear leather gloves and an overshirt, heavy overshirt, when you're fiddling around with a, a wild animal because it, it is a wild animal. I mean, it likes us. We call it, named him Nutty, and for a while he'd hang around, and you'd, you'd go outside and call him, and he'd come running to you and run right up your leg, perch on your shoulder. We think a hawk got him. We're still a little disappointed about that one. He was great. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled program. So, yes, I'm not alone in, ha- in having to tell my children, no, you can't do that. But think of how our, absurd our world is when people engage in sinful behavior that steadily reduces the safety of everyone around them, including themselves. So that then, then finally they're carjacked after they voted for defunding the police. And, and you kind of go, well, we don't hope that that has to happen to anybody. But if it's going to happen to anybody, that was a great person for it to happen to. She deserved it. And I don't mean that meanly. I don't mean that with some kind of vengeful spirit. I mean that with a biblical lex talionis, God-administrated justice through the wicked against her. And you're like, seriously, do you have to be told that that is a bad, apparently? Because wickedness is incoherent. Now, all this has been incredibly depressing, so where's the hope? Well, we're not done yet. Because in 2 Chronicles 28, a prophet of the Lord was there, was, was there where? Well, when... Pekah's army went down and conquered Judah and wiped out 120,000 soldiers in one day. They also took 200,000 of the people captive and brought them back. So a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded, and he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria. And he said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that has reached to heaven. It's one thing to fight an adversary. It's another thing just to slaughter wantonly once the battle was clearly over and clearly won. And you went on killing for the sake of killing. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me. And send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken. For the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. And you think, well, we already know how this is going to pan out because the wicked do wickedness. They don't care. Now, wait, wait, wait. That was the king. That was the leadership. Certain chiefs also of the men of Ephraim. Ephraim. Azariah, the son of Johanan, Barakai, the son of Meshilamoth. 
Uh, you practice it and you still can't say it, right? Because Hebrew does not necessarily trip off our tongues. Uh, Jehizkiah, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Hadlai, stood up against those who were coming from the war and said to them, You shall not bring the captives in here, for you propose to bring upon us the guilt against the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt. Our guilt is already great, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil. And the spoil. An army big enough to wipe out whole cities. And it's like, oh, okay. And leaves 200,000 captives at the doorstep with all the stuff that they had. We could call it stolen, but it was in war. They had, they had pillaged. They had spoiled it. And they just dropped it there. They left it before the princes and the assembly and the men who have been mentioned by name rose and took the captives. Isn't that glorious? The men who have been mentioned by name. We never hear about them before. We never hear about them after. And the Lord mentioned them by name because they stood for righteousness in one moment. In one momentous event. And God mentions them by name. They rose and took the captives, and with them the spoil, with the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, anointed them, and carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees, and returned to Samaria. Here's a conclusion. You can always do right. The whole lesson has been dark. Evil hastens a nation's decline. And we sit around sometimes because we read about so much evil and we wring our hands and we're like, what can we do? I mean, do right. Do right. Salt is not a particularly active phenomenon. When, when Jesus chooses salt as an image, you are the salt of the earth. Salt does not pick up swords and go wage war against other food. Ha ha, that's how I'm going to be really effective. Salt just sits there. And by its mere presence, it has that effect. Now, I believe we should be active in certain legitimate biblical ways as well. But by your presence, you already have an effect. Remember the city of Sodom? And the whole talking down of God's judgment from the I'm going to destroy the cities to 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10 righteous. He didn't say that the righteous had to be evangelizing on the doorstep every day. He just said, if there are 10 righteous present in the city, God would preserve it. Just by being people of the Lord, consistently walking with the Lord, your doing right is already salt and light in this earth. So the scripture tells us, I'm just going to run down through a bunch of applications. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. A prophet comes out and simply speaks the truth. Guys, this is how it is. And like, but I might get in trouble for telling the truth. And the prophet was facing an entire army. What's your excuse? That army could have been incensed and angry and killed him. And instead he just goes, guys, this is the way it is. God's judgment was against Judah. That's why you guys succeeded. But you are doing even worse. He proclaims what is right. He rebukes sin. He warns of impending judgment. They counsel righteousness. Just tell people this is a better way. Walk in it. He inspires others to do good because the rulers of the city, the princes of the city, some righteous men, 
I love that. I love that. Because we think everybody's bad, everybody's bad, everybody's bad. And then all of a sudden you find out the rulers of the city were righteous people. Oh, I needed to hear that. Some of our political leaders are righteous men doing what is right. Righteous women who are making laws and acting in a way that honors the Lord. Inspiring others to do good. Thwarting evil purposes but nonviolently and showing compassion. Oh, it costs the city to feed, clothe, and return 200,000 captives, even though the passage says they took from the spoil and clothed and fed the captives. The spoil was gained in war. It's, it's kind of like, well, this is pay. This is, this is what we keep. It costs them an immense amount of money, even if it were the equivalent of $5 per person in modern terms. That's a million dollars in charity given away real quickly. And it was a lot more than that. Why? Because it was the right thing to do. Note, they could not and did not attempt to remove the king. They were not violent. They were not insurrectionists. They did not resist the king. They could not change the king's heart. They could not change the king's edicts. They could not stop other wicked people from conspiring to overthrow the king. They could not stop outside invaders from attacking the king. But what could they do? In a society in decay, evil hastening the decline of a nation, they look for opportunities to do what is right. Compassion, feeding and clothing, showing a tenderness of heart and mind, and showing a biblical ethic that honors the Lord and says we really are his people. Look for opportunities to be faithful in a fallen age. Father, we're thankful for this testimony. We're thankful that you took us to the depths of darkness first. Because if Scripture were kind of trite about the depth of evil in this world, if it, if it kind of glossed over the surface and said, yeah, bad things happen, but... And then it moved right on to hope and joy, then we wouldn't feel that it really addressed our situation in the world and the wickedness that we see around us. But because it took us to such depths of darkness and then brought us face to face with the fact that righteous people in the midst of a wicked world can still do what is right and by their righteousness influence others around them for good, for, for the sake of the kingdom, for God. If we didn't have that kind of hope and that kind of reversal in a story like this, then we would not have long-term hope as far as our responsibility in this world. So may we be faithful to you this week in small things, looking for opportunities to honor God, to glorify you by doing good. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.